0: Hello, I'm Philip Coggan, the Bartleby columnist of The Economist. Welcome to Money Talks. Coming up on the programme, we speak to Sir Paul Tucker, who was Deputy Governor of the Bank of England until 2013.
1: We've handed over high policy to unelected officials. I think that's a mistake.
0: And the ups and downs of the solar energy industry. If
2: this is a solar coaster, you have to picture China as very much the first wagon in the carriage. It leads the industry up. And it takes the industry over the precipice.
0: First, it's been a week of international handshakes for President Trump. The latest was with North Korea's Kim Jong-un. But the G7 summit in Canada didn't go quite to plan, despite those very firm handshakes, including one from Emmanuel Macron, which left a thumbprint on President Trump's hand.
1: I'm happy to announce that we've released a joint communique by all seven countries.
0: What looked like a joint agreement between the seven nations was undone on the plane when Mr Trump tweeted that he wouldn't endorse it after all. The problem, the unfair treatment of other countries in trade. Samir Keynes is the trade and economics editor for The Economist and is in Washington. Samir, what did happen at the G7 summit?
3: That is a very good question. We know from the president's press conference that he had been discussing NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreement, with Justin Trudeau, the uh, Canadian prime minister. He seemed to be fairly positive in his press conference about that. He really seems to want this thing called a sunset clause in NAFTA, which the original version was for that to mean that the deal would expire every five years. And that's something that the Canadians have been pushing back very hard against that Donald Trump wants. He also delivered this warning that other countries should not retaliate against his steel and aluminium tariffs. He gives his press conference, he gets in his plane, he flies off, leaving the other leaders there And then the other leaders start giving their press conferences. And so Justin Trudeau, the Canadian Prime Minister, gives his one. He says...
1: It would be with regret, but it would be with absolute certainty and firmness that we move forward with retaliatory measures on July 1st, applying equivalent tariffs to the ones that the Americans have uh, unjustly applied to us.
3: And then when he's asked about the sunset clause, this thing that they've just been negotiating over, he says...
1: There will not be a sunset clause. Canada has been unequivocal. We will not, cannot sign a trade deal that expires automatically every five years.
3: So he just completely contradicts what what Donald Trump has just said. He says, oh, maybe there'll be some room for creativity. But essentially, shortly after that, Donald Trump starts tweeting, He uses very aggressive language towards the Canadians. He says he's not going to sign the communique. Then, you know, essentially the media blows up.
0: And the reaction on both sides of the Atlantic has been very different, hasn't it? The French and the Germans have put out a story more in line with that of Justin Trudeau, whereas some of Mr Trump's associates have have backed the president.
3: Yes. I think of the remaining countries, of the, you know, the G6 that was left... There was definitely a feeling of unity that they still wanted to sign up to the communique. And I think going forward, obviously, the the question is, does that disagreement between these major powers, does that translate into any action? And I think generally my advice would be to try and see through all of this spin that's going on and to look at the actions that he's done. One of the threats that Donald Trump tweeted about was that he was going to put tariffs on cars. To some people, that was news. But actually, he initiated an investigation into whether cars and car parts were a threat to national security a few weeks ago. So there were lots of people saying, oh, dear, now we should be much more worried about a trade war. And my response to that is, no, no, you should have been worried about a trade war before. This mercurial behavior where Donald Trump gets annoyed, he tweets, that's, fairly standard behaviour for him. We really shouldn't be surprised by this most recent outburst.
0: But as we are at the moment, the steel and aluminium tariffs are in place and the retaliatory tariffs from the EU and Canada are on their way, right?
3: Indeed, they will arrive in July. We'll see what the Trump administration does in response to that. I suppose we'll all be watching his Twitter feed.
0: So last week, we asked you how worried you were about the trade war on a scale of from uh uh-oh to, ah, where where are we now?
3: I think I'm at a sort of uh, stage, (laughs) but I was at that stage before this G7 summit. My interpretation of what we saw over the weekend was bad. There were hostilities there that would appear to make agreeing a new NAFTA difficult, but if you look at the actions, he hasn't withdrawn from NAFTA. There isn't that much that's different in terms of the threats that he had already put on the table. Those are all still there. And so I think I'll need to see a bit more before I go up the scale to a you know, a full-on screen.
0: <laughs> Sameer Keynes, Trade and Economics Editor for The Economist, thank you very much. Thank you. You're listening to Money Talks on Economist Radio. If you like what you hear and want to read more, You can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash radio offer for 12 issues for $12. Next, Sir Paul Tucker was Deputy Governor of the Bank of England between 2009 and 2013. He's written a new book called Unelected Power, The Quest for Legitimacy in Central Banking and the Regulatory State. In it, he examines what powers technocrats should have and how we should regulate them. In 1997, the then-Chancellor, Gordon Brown, gave the Bank of England more regulatory independence in terms of setting interest rates. I asked Sir Paul whether, looking back over the last 20 years, it had been a successful move.
1: Yes, compared to what went before, because what went before was so poor. The thing that separates technocratically controlled monetary policy from politically controlled monetary policy is the very simple fact that the technocrats in the Federal Reserve, the ECB, the Bank of Japan, aren't running for election. And however skilled or expert politicians and the mandarins around them are, and some of them are very expert, ultimately they will sacrifice everything to prepare themselves for the next election. And that is how it should be. But there are some promises that a government, really want to keep. And one of them is that inflation will be low and stable. So delegating that task has served the world pretty well. I mean, has it been enough to maintain broader stability in the financial system? I mean, horribly not.
0: Yes. Let's come on to that. The Bank of England's monetary target is 2% with a 1% band either way. From May 2008 to February 2009, and from January 2010 to April 2012, it was more than 1% above the target for 2015, 2016, by which stage you you weren't there, of course, but it it was more than 1% below the target. So isn't the difficulty with economics that it's not an exact science, that even the experts can get it wrong, because all throughout that period, obviously, the bank was forecasting that inflation would return to target, and yet...
1: It didn't. Whether you look at the um, Federal Reserve or the ECB, Japan is an exception, the Bank of England, the Swiss National Bank. By the standards of the 1970s or 1980s, inflation has been remarkably low and stable. I think in the great scheme of things, the misses from the target aren't a big deal. The financial crisis is a very big deal. Recently, interest rates in Argentina reached 40%. That's the kind of mess that you have when you don't have a credible monetary regime. It's a very – it's not a terribly, terribly difficult thing to produce but it's a very important thing for an economy and a society to have. Tragically, it wasn't accompanied by anywhere in the Western world with a credible regime for maintaining financial stability.
0: I was looking back before you came this morning at the April 2007 financial stability report which said – that the UK financial system remains highly resilient and it had six potential things that could go wrong. Not one of them was US subprime lending and not one of them was high mortgage debt. So again, it's very difficult, isn't it, for a central bank expert, though it may be, to predict the kind of things that will actually disrupt an economy, even you know a few months before they hit.
1: Yes, it is. But I don't think it's right that the bank of England in this country had no sense of what was going on. I mean, I think that particular report wasn't very good. But you're right. The big point you make is absolutely right. I think it's a fool's game to build a regime on trying to make predictions of precisely what will cause the economy to crack when instead what you have to do is ensure that the core of the financial system, the core of the banking system is highly resilient which is how we think about the airplanes we fly in and all sorts of other things that we use. And we had a feeble banking system. I mean, I don't just mean the UK, but certainly in the UK in the United States and continental Europe. You know, that the US subprime mortgage market brought down the whole global financial system is remarkable because it, it wasn't a terribly big market. Everyone talks about the US subprime market as though it was this gigantic thing. It wasn't. The problem was that the banking system and the penumbra of the banking system, so-called shadow banks, had wafer-thin equity. They were leveraged up to the hilt, I, I reckon, 200 times. It was remarkable and shouldn't have been allowed. I much prefer to build a system for financial stability on the politicians deciding just how resilient they want the core of the financial system to be. And that, I think, is deliverable. And crucially, in terms of the theme of my book, I think it's something that can be monitored by the public. People in office today should put absolutely behind them the secrecy that has characterized bank supervision and bank regulation for the last, well, since the Second World War.
0: And do you think with the benefit of your experience and now as an outsider looking back that we have got the system right now in Britain or indeed elsewhere? I,
1: th- I think, well, it's hugely better. It could hardly be worse, but it is, it is hugely better. I am worried that. It's not quite as strong as it needs to be for, for two reasons. The first is when the equity requirements for banks were calibrated, determined, no one envisaged that monetary policy rates would still be so close to zero. And the significance of that is that the, when the next recession comes in the States, continental Europe, the central banks have much less ammunition to, to stabilize the economy. The other thing is the fact that general policies for shadow banking have not been developed. Shadow banking in the United States triggered the most recent crisis and actually shadow banking in France too. And yet even now we don't have general policies for, for that. And it's been disappointing that the politicians in Congress and the European Parliament haven't been more on the backs of the um, official sector and in, in getting them to pursue that. So
0: let's move to the 11 principles that you come up with it towards the end of the book about how these decisions should be made yeah the first one is that there's a, a a framework for cataloguing agencies that should be able to do this and where would you see the dividing line set up where can we rely only on politicians to make these decisions or where do we need outside agencies to be taking
1: the detailed decisions rather than setting the general principles Perhaps is the division. Well, I mean, a precondition for insulating a decision taker from day to day politics, one precondition is that society has a broadly settled view of the value of the mission. If you turn to my old field, central banking, compared to the 60s and 70s, there aren't people out there arguing we should have higher inflation and more volatile inflation and even lesser are there people who argue we should have more financial crises and they should be deeper. That's a big deal. Let me just challenge you on that point you just made. I think there are some people who've argued
0: that inflation could be higher than the 2% target and there are some people who argue that it doesn't matter about um, if you have a, a friendly central bank, it doesn't ma- matter how much government debt you issue, the MMT theorists, uh, because you can you can spend your money on whatever you like, because the central bank can always print the money to. Do so.
1: so those debates are going on. No, again, they are. They, and, they and, are. And how would, a, a, you know, how do you set up the system to protect? If they against became, them? well, they're, they're, I mean, if someone said the inflation target should be higher, 4% rather than 2%, well, that's something that should be decided by politicians, not decided by the central bankers. And for your British listeners, well, if that happened in the UK, it would be decided by the executive branch under delegated power from parliament. In the United States, it could be decided by the Federal Reserve. I think that's a bad thing um, because it's effectively shifting the inflation tax.
0: Now, your final principle is that no healthy democracy should have more uh, independent agency regimes than its legislature is capable of overseeing and keeping under review. And I'm just interested, do you think we are in a position where we have too many
1: of these expert agencies conducting policy at the moment? I think that's quite likely for the UK. I don't think it's true for the United States In the United States, there are far fewer truly independent agencies because most of the regulatory commissions have to go to Congress each year to get their money, and that makes them sensitive to the ebb and flow of of congressional sentiment. Here, many of the regulators have very high formal independence. It's hardly ever remarked that the Financial Conduct Authority has more formal independence than the Bank of England, essentially because it has complete budgetary independence. A perfectly respectable position, but not one I hold, is that never mind accountability and legitimacy, the unelected people will do it better, the people will be better off, delegate it. The reason I don't take that view is that every area of government eventually stumbles and makes a mess. And I think that the people are entitled and expect to be able to vote out the people who made a mess, and yet they can't vote out the unelected technocrats. That's okay, so long as the technocrats have a carefully framed mandate and proper accountability to Congress and Parliament. But if Parliament doesn't have enough time or resources to do that, well, in my view, better to have lower welfare and more legitimacy. Societies should be very careful that they can specify what they want, the central bank or regulatory agency to do. And in some cases, I think that's been achieved. I think for UK monetary policy, it's not bad at all. But in other areas, it's very vague. And so we've handed over high policy to unelected officials. I think that's a mistake.
0: Well, it's all detailed. This is a fascinating debate in Sir Paul Tucker's book, Unelected Power, the quest for legitimacy in central banking and the regulatory state. Sir Paul Tucker, thank you very much. Thank you very much. Last week, we spoke to Kate Pickett, author of The Inner Level, about the link between inequality and mental health. Andrei Shramko from Slovakia wrote to us to say that people in communism were much more equal, maybe less depressed, but also much more persecuted if they tried to stand out in comparison with others. I'm not sure how many people in Western society would like to end up living in such conditions. Saying that an equal society is something we should strive for demands much deeper discussion. Thank you, Andre. You can also let us know what you think about any of our stories. We'd love to hear from you. Contact us on Twitter at Economist Radio or email us at radio at Finally, what is the future of solar power? Governments around the world have been showering the solar industry with subsidies. As a result, the industry has grown at 40% a year for two decades. The sector claims that, during sunny spells at least solar is getting close to cost parity with fossil fuels. But a sudden reversal in pro-solar policies in China, the US and parts of Europe means that this year may be the first ever in which the growth of new installations declines. Does that mean it's time to get off the so-called solar coaster and stop subsidising the industry? Henry Tricks is our energy and commodities editor. So, Henry... What prompted China to make this move? If this is a solar coaster, you have to picture China
2: as very much the first wagon in the carriage. It leads the industry up and uh, it takes the industry over the precipice. In this particular instance, China has been dragging up the solar industry with extraordinary force in the last few years. Last year, it accounted for half of the solar capacity that was installed around the world. And that was a record year for solar installations. So China has been adding huge amounts of the stuff, but it's come at a cost. It's, uh, it, it offers whopping subsidies for some of this solar. The subsidy bill, or rather the deficit in its subsidy finances, has now reached about 19 billion dollars. And there is so much capacity that actually it's having to stop solar and let other power plants run uh, because there's just too much. So fine. it's done something which it was expected to do within the next couple of years. It's accelerated it. And basically, it's put a halt on most new additions of solar in China this year.
0: And other countries have pulled back from supporting solar as well.
2: It's not been a great year for solar, actually, after a record year last year. You'll remember that the Trump administration put tariffs on solar imports earlier on this year, which is likely to lead to a a big slowdown in solar installations in America. Over the last couple of years, there has been more concern about the subsidies and the, the, the impact on people's bills across Europe. So the EU is trying to kind of Tone down the uh, the subsidy scheme. So basically, the solar industry is being asked increasingly to operate on a no subsidy basis.
0: So it's taken the training wheels off, as it were. Is it ready to ride the bike forward? Is it competitive? it's a really good time to find out because the industry or rather solar
2: advocates increasingly say that the industry has reached cost parity with fossil fuels in other words that it's almost as uh, as cheap to produce solar electricity as it is to produce electricity from coal or other sources and i guess the proof of the pudding will be in the eating if there are no subsidies they have to really show that they can compete they can stand on their own feet and compete on their own merits but it's a difficult one. As we know, solar is intermittent. It only operates when the sun is shining. Yes, it's incredibly cheap at that time, but it requires lots of backup power, and that's, that's a problem.
0: Yes, in Britain, we know that problem only too well. But the answer to that in the long run might be storing electricity during the sunny times, right? How, how close are we getting to that?
2: We're not not close. I mean, there is, there is definitely battery storage is getting cheaper. The idea that you would be able to afford to store electricity through winter months, for example, is still beyond the bounds of what is what is technically possible at the moment. But there is a lot more that needs to be done in terms of technological improvement that makes solar much much more efficient than it already is and of course as you just said batteries we need we need a lot more technological innovation in batteries to provide the kind of batteries that can store power for for longer.
0: Henry Triggs thanks very much. Thanks. That's all for this episode of Money Talks. Please rate us on your podcast provider. I'm Philip Coggan and in London this is The Economist.